In this podcast, Wayne Bruce talks to Erwin Lowe, the Chief Medical Officer at St. Vincent's Health Australia. So Erwin, thanks very much for your time today. Rebecca and I had the pleasure to sit down and chat with you about a few questions about your career and various things. So we were just wondering, perhaps to kick it off, what led you to study medicine in the first place? So thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, it's an interesting question, really. Why Why did I want to do medicine? So if you have asked me quite a few years ago, I would have taught you about how I grew up wanting to help people, you know, wanting to go into a profession where I can serve the community. But the reality, to be honest, is that, you know, when I was growing up, I really didn't have any true idea what I wanted to do. And in high school, I was fortunate enough to get HSCs and uh, I got enough points to basically do any course I life. And I have to admit, at the time, the hardest course to get into was Melbourne Medicine. It had the highest score. And I said, I'll do that. But, you know, to be fair, at the time, my parents gave me a lot of, you know, being Asian, both my parents pushed me really hard to say that, you know, I really had two choices, medicine or law. And if I really wanted to, I could be a dentist <laughs> support that choice. But, you know, I went into medicine and it was actually quite a humbling experience to go from being in high school. I went to a public high school. It was very, very high, great school. From there, getting really good marks and being at the top of year 12 to going to the medical school where I was really average, right? And in fact, below average, probably, you know, I was mixing up with people who really were really smart and I really had to step up. There was absolutely no regrets to choosing medicine. Medicine's really a profession that's very rewarding. You get to help people every day. You get to feel really useful in the community that you are actually serving an important purpose where you add value to everyone else's life, extending people's well-being and health and helping them to address really what's the most important part of everyone's values. So what do we want to value in the end? I mean, you know, people look at creating wealth for themselves, progressing their careers. But the moment any of us get sick, in particular with a life-threatening illness, that's it. Nothing else matters. It's about what is important in life. It's your health and your loved ones, time that you can spend with them. So... And you've gone down, you know, if we clumsily classified, you've gone down a sort of a medical management or medical administration route. What led you down that path and have you enjoyed that aspect? Yeah, so I have. So again, my experience would be very similar to what a lot of other people who have gone into medical administration, medical leadership roles have gone through. It's been a bit unplanned, a bit opportunistic. So I did my medical degree. I started to specialize in pediatrics and psychiatry. So I was doing a combined training and did the first exam and I got interested in forensic psychiatry. And so I thought I'll do a law degree. So I went to Monash University, worked part-time, completed a law degree and got offered the job in a law firm. So then I did two years as full-time as a lawyer. I actually worked as a lawyer at, uh, with Spark Helmore and uh, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed my time in law but really missed medicine and at the time I didn't think that working in a private law firm was for me long term although I did enjoy the content and, and the work itself. So I tried to think about a medical specialty where I could combine both medicine and law and medical administration came up really as a potential way where I could use both my medical knowledge and my legal background together. So I went and did the training did an MBA and a Master's of Health Service Management and then completed that training, got my fellowship in that specialty and worked at Peter Mac and the rest is history really. And it's been a really fulfilling career to be able to do combine medicine, law and management together. So what's been the biggest work-related challenge you've faced in your career so far? 
Well, that's a big question, isn't it? I think in my career, I've had to deal with lots of different crises. I work in public health and now in both public, private and aged care. I think ultimately, the biggest challenge I think in any job is not just the job itself, but managing people. So in my time, I've had to manage lots of difficult circumstances, but it always involves having to deal with people, either difficult people, people who are in conflict with one another or in conflict with yourself, or people who are in distress, whether it's to do with managing a medical disaster, which impacts on families and patients and then having to open disclosure with family members that's hard having to run up to family members and tell them we have made a mistake we are sorry and how can we help you that I've had a couple of those meetings that have been difficult and sometimes you meet with the family members and their lawyers in the room but I think the movement now is to be as open and transparent as possible to be upfront and to apologize if you've done something wrong and to own up to it which is which is what we've been we have done you know actually uh, in this very room I had to meet with a family of parents whose um, child had a bad outcome and again it's very similar a one hour meeting turned into four hours and mm. having to apologize and try to address all the concerns they have and that's that's still it it's still an issue and and the honest truth is that in health we try our best to provide the best quality and most of the time we, we succeed but sometimes bad things happen and so we, we have to figure out a way to prevent that happening again in the future. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And speaking of uh, the future, mm. how do you think digital health will change the healthcare landscape in the coming years? Thank you, Rebecca. That's an interesting question because really digital health, digitalization of everything is already happening, right? As consumers of technology, we are dealing with things that are now online. We use apps all the time. Artificial intelligence software is already in our phones. So we use it every day. And health in general has been slow to catch up, partly because health as a whole, as an industry, is quite risk-averse. It's very conservative. So because we deal with people's lives, we don't want to introduce new, new technology willy-nilly. Uh, so we are slow to adopt new technologies in general. You know, robotics and AI has been slow to come into health, but it's coming. And secondly, these things are expensive, and in particular in public health, but also in, to a certain extent in private healthcare, we're dealing with limited and finite resources. Health is becoming more expensive as the population age. It's chronic disease become more prevalent and, you know, we kind of need to figure out how we treat people more and more and more at home. So in general, we sort of adopt, but the, the reality is that everywhere else in every other industry, things have progressed and advanced much further. So in health, uh, right now in Australia, you know, hospitals are now trying to adopt electronic medical record records. They are trying to move towards an online space where patients have access to their own records online. So health will change. What will definitely be a game changer is the rise of artificial intelligence in health. Already that revolution is happening in the diagnostic specialties in pathology and radiology. So any specialty that involves pattern recognition will be impacted, right? Because computers will be able to do that much quicker and faster and more effectively. And now research papers are coming out to show that, in fact, AI machine learning systems are better than humans in a lot of these areas. And then the next kind of wave will be the kind of thinking specialties, the diagnostics, basically the specialties that kind of have to prognosticate and figure out what's the best treatment. So oncology, for example, you know, uh, Watson moving to oncology, trying to come up with better cancer protocols for different cancers based on the evidence. Because we know that research is advancing so much that the number of research papers out there will be beyond 
beyond the comprehension and, and, and ability of any particular individual to, to, to be across. So we are relying now on machines to kind of read them for us and then compile, uh, you know, a, a view as what is the best practice now based on the latest evidence. So that's all happening. And then the last frontier, I think, is in surgery, right? And in surgery, because surgeons at the, at the moment, and including you know, interventional radiologists and other proceduralists, will feel quite safe because we don't have robots at the moment that can do what they do. But that might come, you know, maybe not in the 20 years, but maybe 50 or 100 years. So I think that technology revolution in AI machine learning, that will come to health very, very soon. Diversity's become a bit of an issue, prominent issue more and more of late across a whole range of different aspects. Erwin, I mean, you work with a range of companies, you're on a number of boards, particularly interested in your view as a person on boards in terms of the importance and how you try and foster it through the organisation in an appropriate way. Sure, I think diversity is key to having a leadership team that's healthy, that provides different points of view and that represents the wider community. I think that's that's really why you want to have diversity. And it's important to note that diversity is a concept that's constantly evolving. So we are not now just talking about diversity in terms of background, racial background or cultural backgrounds, but you know, we're talking religious backgrounds. We're talking obviously gender, which is still an issue in health, to be honest. It's obviously an issue in the wider society, but in healthcare in general, we're now getting more women graduating in medicine, but has the medic as you go up the medical hierarchy, you get less women in medical leadership roles, definitely. And you know, I've written papers on it, I've done research in this space. Is that primarily, do you think, because those people that want families have to take that forced time out and it just puts them on the back foot? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. I think there is a structural problem inbuilt into the system that we all have to tackle, which is exactly that point where we don't allow workplace flexibility. So it cuts away automatically people who want to take time off for parental leave, not just women, but also men. But that is built into a lot of the specialty medical colleges training programs, which is now being unpicked now. So the Australian Medical Council, through its accreditation of medical colleges, is now attacking that very issue. So most, if not all colleges now allow for flexible training, shared training allow, which means that more women can train in, in those specialties. We just need to make sure that it's not just at the policy level, but that it gets operationalized at the hospital level because it's hard. It's hard to to work in a emergency or surgical specialty and do it part-time, but we have to allow for it. So you're right, there is a structural issue in place. And um, there is also a, um, you know, my wife's a doctor. She, I've asked her many times, you know, why, why don't she's a psychiatrist? Why don't you apply for this leadership role or that leadership role? But she just doesn't want to. <laughs> That's the other issue. So, so a lot of women end up in roles like she does. So she's a direct, she's a director of psychiatry training for Monash Health, and they end up in those kind of roles, which are a lot more flexible because a lot of the m- medical director roles are full time. So it's how do you kind of then change that? Anyway, so it, there are lots and lots of reasons, but part of it is a, l- a lack of pipeline. So you know, there's the lack of middle management leadership roles to allow for people to move up the ranks. There is a lack of good role modeling. It is complex. It is a complex issue. But we definitely need that. But I was going to add, it's not just gender as well. Then it's also diversity in to reflect the community. So it's about people who are different as well. So 
One of the things that I found for my teams is that when I interview for people, I tend to choose people who think like me because I like to, to work with people on my wavelength. But I've been consciously thinking about it now about people who don't think like me. Mm-hmm. And what about this, you know, people who think in a very different way, who I might find a bit uncomfortable, but who can, who I feel still have the cultural fit and has the same values, right? I mean, that's the most important. You know, fitting to fit within a culture and they have the same values, and to mission oriented, especially for say Minson's health where I'm at. But you know, not to just choose people who are like me, but choose people who who I might not be comfortable with, but who then challenge my views and provide that additional diversity as well. I think that is important too. Yeah, and lead to yeah you know, better outcomes because exactly it's right. Think. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, I'm going to hand over to Rebecca again in a minute, but um, just reflecting again on your time on various boards, what are the challenges? What are the big sort of responsibilities? that you have as a board member? Are there any things that keep you awake at night? I think uh, I speak for most board members. The current environment in health is challenging as a whole. And I think as a board member, one of the big challenges would be to balance between governance and being too operational and receiving enough assurance from management to fulfill roles as, as a board member at the governance level. And in particular, has the environment in health, in particular in private health, becomes more financially challenging, but also complexity of health is becoming hard to manage. There needs to be, as a board member, you need to come up with a very good system of governing an organization so that you get assurance for management that you know they are doing their job so that you can do your job so i think that's at that level that that is a key concern i think your issue of diversity is important i think boards are struggling with that how you balance between a diverse board a skill-based board and in some cases in some of my bio boards uh, in particular the college board that i'm on you know, and I've, on, I've been on different ones. Uh, being a representative board, so you and jurisdictionally representative, you need to have members from each state. How do you balance that with having a skill space board? Is very, very, very complex. But yeah, I think that's that is a challenge. Mm. Fantastic. Thanks so very much for touching on diversity the way that you have, and you okay. really hit the nail on the head. I think that you can't we can't have a conversation about diversity without talking about inclusion. So yeah. thank you for that. I found that very inspiring, um, and. I really wanted to talk about who has inspired you most in your career. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I think a lot of inspiration that I get come from people outside of health, to be honest. People who have, despite adversity, has, has been able to overcome. So, I mean, it's going to sound trite, but, you know, it's people like Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. People who are like the underdog who have been able to overcome. I mean, in health, I've, I don't feel right to name people, but I've worked with really great leaders who have kind of inspired me to kind of step up, who have given a lot of encouragement. So a lot of mentors from that point of view. So that's a lot I'll say. I mean, I, I I think my, my inspiration is really outside of health mm. and um, you know so my leadership model that I like to, to follow is, is the serving leadership model it's the people who become leaders through service who inspire me the most you know not the people who are in positions of power who can then kind of uh, do things that way but people who have actually got no role at all they don't actually have a title even but then who affect change I think that's that's most inspirational so you talked about some of the great leaders that have inspired you. What defines a great leader? What made those people great leaders? Yeah, so, I mean, to that point, it's, in my mind, the great leaders are the one who are able to inspire others to their own sacrifice and service. So they are the ones who, um, without asking for any credit or recognition, they set out to want to make a difference. It's not about making a difference to the world, but making a difference to the to the fellow human beings, the people around them. And so they, they serve them, right? And then as they serve others, the, those people then 
can see that this person is genuinely caring for them. And so then they ascribe leadership to them. They follow this person. And it's through that that they create followership because that's what leadership is, is having followers, right? And so that really is the definition of a true leader. People have to follow, but people who follow willingly and choose to follow. Yeah, and choose to follow. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I think those are the leaders that inspire me the most. And that's mm -hmm. the definition of a true leader. It's mm -hmm. those who can inspire us to follow them. And the fact of the matter is, um, leadership can be, leadership uh, in one sense is neutral because there are people who can use that char charisma and inspirational kind of personality to draw people to them in a negative way, right? And lead them down the wrong path. So there is a qualitative values-based aspect to leadership where it's not just about inspiring people to follow you in a self-serving way or leading them down the wrong path, but in an ethical way where you're actually creating a positive impact on the world. Great. So what would be your top tips for aspiring young medical leaders today? First thing I'll say to aspiring medical leaders is to remember that as a medical person, so as a doctor, you're already in a leadership position because you, uh, you'll be working in a team because medicine's now team-based, health is that complex. And as the doctor of the team, you already have a role to play in ensuring that you lead with quality and safety, that you're leading in role modeling, so wash your hands, you know, do the right thing, behave well in a respectful way because people look to you already. So it doesn't matter how junior you are, you have that leadership role. Second thing to say is that, you know, as an inspiring medical leader, you need to learn how to follow. So followership is a concept that we don't teach enough in medicine. We, we want to teach everyone to be leaders, but you can imagine that if everyone thinks that they're the cook in the kitchen, you know, someone needs to follow, right? And so the other side of leadership is, is healthy real followership because everyone follows right we all follow somebody so it's about knowing when to lead and when to follow because serving leadership and true leadership is about leading and following in a contextual way you know you're not an expert in everything so learn how to follow learn how to listen to other people and then the third thing is to uh, lead through servanthood so this is what i was saying before is you, you want to lead not to control people but you want to lead to serve them to help them to be, be become better people and to uh, build them up so invert the hierarchy triangle so you have the bottom, helping to equip your team members to be better leaders themselves so that they can serve other people. So that's the kind of thing. And I think lastly is to say, you know, if you do have an aspiration to take up a leadership role, to step up to become a head of a unit or maybe a deputy head initially, or, you know, to be to become a medical director is to hold on to the ambition to, to not be afraid to step up, to try to plan it because most people do it in an unplanned way. But, you know, if you have an interest, try to do the right training, seek the right mentor talk to people who are in, already in a role and then lastly just do not be afraid to put your hand up because i think part of the issue is that people get a bit shy they think you know i'm not ready i'm not ready but sometimes it's all about putting your hand up being recognized that you are interested so that people know you are there and that you have an interest and then accept the fact that maybe you're not ready but that you might be ready in three to five years so do the training and, and set yourself up so that you you are ready in the next three to five years you said that you're actively involved in podcasts with two people from America and it's futuristic. So, you know, there's an opportunity to give it a, a plug to our audience. Oh, yeah, sure. So Foreseeable Futures is my podcast that we uh, we have launched, really. And we uh, I think it's foreseeablefutures.com you can go to, but it'll be on Spotify, YouTube, Apple iTunes. It's just a few guys chatting about futurology in general, the study of the potential of future technologies, really. So we'll talk, we talk about health, but we're not only talk about health, we talk about space, new technologies, anything you can think of, kind of chat about and speculate about.